I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. tell you why you're wrong. I'm Dave Yost, and today we'll be starting with the first episode of our series on the wealth of nations. Now, for those who weren't tracking, every other week I'll be delving into a single chapter of Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, and giving you a synopsis of what it's about as well as some analysis of how it applies to modern economics. Before we launch into it, I want to give you just a little bit of an overview of who Adam Smith was and why this book is so important. Adam Smith was born in Scotland in 1723. His formal education was in the field of social philosophy at the University of Glasgow and later at Oxford. Uh, Most refer to Adam Smith as an economist, but depending on how you want to parse it, really he was a philosopher. Uh, There wasn't really a formal subject of economics until Smith, well, created it. What I find really interesting about Smith is that he didn't really sit down to invent a new social science. What he was trying to do was to cover an area in philosophy that he found lacking. Smith noted that from the pre-Socratics on, philosophy as a discipline covered all aspects of human life, from the nature of existence to theories of governance to the nature of a higher power, and to death in the afterlife. Every aspect of human life had, at one time or another, been contemplated by the great philosophers. Except one. And once he realized it, it it seemed like a pretty glaring oversight. Smith noted that throughout the annals of philosophy, there didn't seem to be a philosophy of work. No great thoughts on the nature of labor. And this seemed odd to him, because work tended to occupy, you know, uh, around a third or more of people's daily lives. 
It seemed to Smith that no philosopher in history had deemed labor worthy of consideration, and in a somewhat appropriate move, he decided that rather than compete with his contemporaries on the philosophical subjects that had been thoroughly covered and were being thoroughly covered, he would stake out a kind of, well, comparative advantage uh, by being the philosopher of work. In his life, he would do much writing and speaking on the subject, but he'd become known for two major works. Uh, the first, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, written in 1759, and then <clears throat> An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, written in 1776. Now, most people forget, or, well, really, just don't know about the theory of moral sentiments, but it's an interesting work that lays out the a lot of the groundwork for the wealth of nations. Uh, if you all are uh, satisfied with these chapter reviews, uh, I'd be more than happy to continue right along into the theory of moral sentiments after we finish the wealth of nations. Don't get too excited, though. <clears throat> At a chapter every other week, we won't be done with this with wealth of nations until well into 2019. You're going to see new episodes of Game of Thrones before we're done with Wealth of Nations. So, with these works, Smith basically laid out the core tenets of economic theory and gave the first description of the free market. One of the things that I've always been really impressed with about Smith is that in most subjects, one sees them develop from fairly rudimentary understandings, often clouded by false assumptions and inaccurate data, then over time, as more people refine the study, the subject comes into focus and, and true knowledge is achieved. This, to a degree, isn't the case with economics. Adam Smith walked up to the plate and knocked one into the parking lot on his first swing. You'll see as we go through the book just how right Smith was about so many things, despite not having access to big data or any of the other bells and whistles available to modern economists. In fact, it often seems like no matter what approach you try to take in modern economics, you're just doing a lot of work to wind up discovering that the major economic breakthrough that you thought you made was something that Adam Smith figured out 200 years ago. Uh, it reminds me of the South Park joke about uh, animated shows not being able to do something new because The Simpsons did it first. Uh, in the case of economics, it's, uh, I guess, Smith said it first. I think I might have to design some t-shirts for the podcast that say that and say, yeah, Smith said it first. Uh, let me do some workups on that and see how they look. If they turn out all right, I might start uh, selling them through the podcast. More to follow on that one. Anyway, that's our very brief overview of Adam Smith. I may do uh, later episodes where we really get into his life and the influences that shaped his work. But for now, <clears throat> let's crack open the Wealth of Nations. Book one of the causes of improvement in the productive powers of labor and of the order according to which its produce is naturally distributed among the different ranks of the people. Yeah, that's just the title of the section. Uh, if you've never tried to read Smith, he is, well, 
let's just say he isn't known for being pithy. Uh, Chapter one of book one, the division of labor. Here, Smith launches right into his assertion that the, the greatest improvement in productivity comes from the effects of the division of labor. Now, for a little context, which... Oddly, Smith does not provide. I mean, it would have let him make the book even longer. Uh, what what he's doing is he's taking note of a spike in productivity that had recently become noticeable in Great Britain. Uh, what we know today is that is that the spike he's talking about. Uh, what he's seeing is uh, what we now know as the dawn of what would become known as the Industrial Age. The Industrial Age is usually set as beginning in Great Britain around 1760, and and it's basically the result of a societal progression in that country away from primarily agriculture-based economy to one of industry and manufacturing. This shift is what Smith has noticed and, and decided to explain what factors are contributing to it. As he says... To his thinking, the key factor driving productivity is the division of labor. So what is the division of labor? Well, as the term suggests, it was a trend that Smith had noticed where manufacturing work was being divided amongst the labor force. Essentially, as manufacturing was becoming more prominent, people were restructuring the way laborers would do work. Instead of having all your workers learn and perform each step of the process of making a product, they were starting to divide the individual tasks involved in making that product and assign each task to an individual. I know this may not sound revolutionary, but at the time, it kind of was. The example that Smith uses to illustrate his point concerns the making of something as simple as a pin. And... I'll use it here as well. If you're a laborer who has no experience in pin making and and you uh, you are told to make pins, you're not going to know exactly what to do or or how to use the various pieces of equipment needed to make a pin. So, you're probably going to do a pretty bad job and not make very many pins. If instead you have someone familiar with pin making, they'll do a better job and they'll produce a fair number of pins. But if you take each stage of the pin-making process, which Smith says is 18 separate and distinct operations, and divvy them out to multiple laborers and have those laborers do only that part of the process, then they will not only get really good at their individual function, but also really efficient at it. What Smith is noting is that when the work of one man becomes the work of many, then productivity skyrockets. In fact, he makes some estimates on the productivity, which I think are interesting. He states that he has observed a small workhouse where ten men each took two or three of the operations of pin making and were able to produce around 48,000 pins a day. Now, Even dividing that output across the laborers, that's still 4,800 pins per man per day. Smith is impressed by this, because by his estimation, if each of those 10 men had tried to perform all 18 operations of pin making by themselves, they would likely have only produced around 20 pins a day. And here, 
assuming that Adam Smith's estimates are even close to correct, is why the division of labor is such a big deal. We're not talking about a 1% or 2% increase in productivity. By dividing the work and letting each man specialize in their own task, we're talking about an increase in productivity of 23,900%. That's insane. Now, Smith does note that this kind of increased productivity is, is really only taking place in industrial nations, and that agriculture doesn't really allow for the same kind of spike. So you don't see the same thing in, in countries. He, he picks on Poland, <laughs> but in, in, in countries where, where agriculture is the main you know, uh, driver of the economy. And to a certain degree, he does have a point. When you're talking about agriculture, there are some limits on how productive you can be because, at least at the time, you can't make a potato grow any faster. As a result, there's not much opportunity for the division of labor on a farm to allow for a rapid increase in output, at least not on the level of the, the pin maker. Again, at the time, Eli Whitney's patent for the cotton gin is still 18 years away from being approved. So you are going to see spikes in productivity in agriculture. Of course, Smith isn't wholly wrong, even in retrospect, because he does, on several occasions, talk about advances in technology allowing for increased productivity. So in a way, he's already accounting for the possibility that new inventions could revolutionize agricultural work. Again, Smith said it first. Smith attributes the value of the division of labor to three circumstances or factors that allow for such massive increases in production. The first, he says, is the increase in dexterity in every particular workman. When the division of labor reduces each worker's labor to a single operation, the worker, through concentration and repetition, inevitably becomes both good and efficient at that task. Here, he uses the example of the manufacture of nails. Smith really likes to make his points by showing how they apply to the, the smallest and simplest of things. Like with the pins, he notes that even an experienced blacksmith who has never made nails before, if told to make nails, could probably only make around 200 nails a day, and they'd be of pretty poor quality. If you then give the same nail-making assignment to a blacksmith who is familiar with making nails, he could probably, by himself, produce around 800 nails a day. But then Smith gives us an anecdote of an operation where several young boys who had never done any other job except their individual parts of the nail-making process could produce 2,300 nails per day. So when you're talking about dexterity among workmen, he's really just talking about, well, one, the value of assigning the manufacture of products to people trained and familiar with how to manufacture those products, and two, that by dividing the work, a laborer will become significantly more efficient at those tasks that they are assigned to. And I think we all know this to be true. At some time or another, we've all had to do some kind of job or chore that was incredibly repetitive. 
but the more we did it, the better we got at it, and the more efficient we got at it. When I was younger, mowing the lawn used to take me over an hour. Uh, but over the years, as I did it more, I got more efficient at each aspect of it, you know, through experience. And now I knock out mowing the lawn in 15 to 20 minutes. The second circumstance that Smith talks about is the saving of time that would be lost in moving from one work to another. What he's talking about here is the idea that specialization in one kind of work or one process allows for concentration and focus on that task. Again, it makes sense in the most human kind of way. If you've ever been doing chores around your home, you probably finished up uh, vacuuming and thought, well, I'll have myself a little break before I move on to dusting. It's a natural thing to use the completion of one task as a natural point for a break. Smith, being the poncy 18th century intellectual that he is, of course, refers to this as sauntering between tasks. But whatever word you use, I'm sure you know what he's talking about. The fact is that we all tend to work more intensely when we're doing just one thing. And, and even if you're not talking about a full-blown break between tasks, we all do kind of, well, saunter a bit before we move on to the next one. Division of labor, of course, solves this sauntering problem by eliminating the movement from one task to another and creating the naturally occurring benefits that spring from focused workers. Now, I made sure to use the specific term naturally occurring for a reason that I will get into in uh, two weeks in the next chapter, but I did want to make a note of it right now. The third circumstance is then the invention of machinery. Machinery was obviously a growing contributor to the increase in productivity at the time, but here Smith takes an interesting turn. He doesn't link the increase in machinery as causing the division of labor, but rather the division of labor as causing the increase in machinery. What he notes is that, along with increased focus, dexterity, and decreased time lost, a worker set to a single task will, after enough time, start to figure out ways of making the task less grueling on himself. And the more familiar they are at that task they're doing, the better machinery they will come up with to ease their labor. Most people talk about Smith as citing self-interest as as, uh, necessary to a market system. Or really, they, they don't. What they do is they bastardize that idea and make it greed is what drives you know the market what drives capitalism and and we'll get into that and and what smith is really talking about there in in later episodes but for now i think the the overlook driver of productivity that smith thinks is hugely important is apparently laziness necessity truly is the mother of invention and smith seems to think necessity is driven uh, the, the strongest in people by our desire to not work, or at least not exert ourselves during work. 
I just find it somewhat ironic that our, our natural laziness is apparently what drives us to invent things to make our lives easier, thus making us more productive. Uh, Smith tells an anecdote here that, that seems to really crack him up uh, about a boy working in a fire engine. Which, uh, what he's referring to here is a steam engine, not a fire truck. It's, I guess, just the term they were using at the time. Uh, so the boy, his job in, in this uh, fire engine was to open and shut the link between the boiler and the cylinder. Now, the boy being probably 9 or 10 years old, don't forget, this is the late 18th century. No labor laws, no the jungle nine-year-olds working in steam engines and 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 like any kid his age uh, he really would have preferred to play with his friends rather than you know work in a steam engine well after enough time working there apparently the kid figured out that if he tied a string from the handle of the valve that opened and closed to another part of the engine the valve would open and close without him even having to be there thus letting him go play with his friends and that right there might be the only delightfully quirky story about child labor that has ever existed. Smith also notes that the value that machinery brings to industry has helped to stimulate, well, not a new market, because it's always kind of been there, but I guess a newly prominent market of private inventors. If you can invent a machine that increases productivity in manufacturing, and you can patent and sell it, thus earning your living entirely off your inventions. It may seem like a minor thing, but what Smith is referencing more broadly here is the tendency that changes in the market, while eliminating or altering some jobs, often wind up spawning new kinds of employment that had not before existed, or at least weren't all that profitable. We see this today as automation has eliminated a lot of the jobs that used to require a person to do them. But in doing so, the rise of automation has created new jobs as a, a kind of implied task. Computers have eliminated a lot of the work that used to have to be done manually, but then suddenly we needed people to program and fix our computers. The internet is still in the process of upending the dynamics of our economy and society, but while the existence of the internet has eliminated the need for certain jobs, we now require web designers, network specialists, cybersecurity, and a huge range of other jobs that didn't exist before the internet was a thing. When we get around to the invisible hand, and we will, this is one of the aspects of the market that Smith no doubt looked at and saw at least the appearance of some kind of guiding force in the marketplace. Uh, jobs are eliminated, but new jobs emerge to be done. The market provides. So these three factors, Smith tells us, are critical because they are what is driving productivity. But that's not the end of the equation as Smith sees it. The rise in productivity means that workmen have more product to trade in the market. And because this increased productivity isn't limited to one trade, but rather a general increase in productivity, all workers have more product to trade in the market. 
there's more for each worker to sell, and there's more for each worker to buy from other workers. And to quote Smith, a general plenty diffuses through society. Uh, the section of the chapter uh, is, is subtitled The Universal Opulence of a Well-Governed Society. And, and in those two quotes I, I, I uh, just hit right there, I think we get to the critical takeaway that Smith is driving at here. Throughout the chapter, he continuously ties the separate ideas of the division of labor together by highlighting the existence of an inherent interconnectivity throughout the marketplace. No cause lacks an effect, and no effect fails to serve as cause for some other effect. A spike in productivity means more pins. More pins sold means that the worker who made them can buy more nails. The worker buying more nails uh, means that the nail maker can buy more, well, fill in the blank. Plus, you go back a little on that branch, more pins made means more pins available to the seamstress. More pins means more clothing made. More clothing that gets sold and the seamstress can buy more, well, Smith actually lays this out in a much more elaborate way, but uh, I think it's worth quoting in its entirety because he does a, an excellent job at making his own point. So I'm going to read this here. Uh, uh, he's talking about uh, day labor, uh, you know, which, which I think he, uh, once again, going to kind of the simplest uh meanest uh, example he can he can come up with so the woolen coat for example which covers the day labor as coarse and rough as it may appear is the produce of the joint labor of a great multitude of workmen the shepherd the sorter of the wool the wool comber or carter the dyer the scribbler, the spinner, the weaver, the fuller, the dresser, with many others, must all join their, their different arts in order to complete even this homely production. How many merchants and carriers beside must have been employed in transporting the materials from some of those workmen to others who often live in very distant parts of the country? How much commerce and navigation in particular how many shipbuilders sailors sailmakers rope makers must have been employed in order to bring together the different drugs made uh, use of by the dyer which often come from the remotest corners of the world what a variety of labor too is necessary in order to produce the tools of the meanest of those workmen to say nothing of such complicated machines as the ship of the sailor the mill of the fuller or even the loom of the weaver let us consider only what a variety of labor is requisite in order to form the very simple machine the shears which the shepherd clips the wool the miner the builder of the furnace for smelting the ore the feller of the timber the burner of the charcoal to be made use of in smel in the smelting house the brickmaker, the bricklayer the workmen who attend the furnace the millwright the forger the smith must all of them join their different arts in order to produce them were we to examine in the same manner all the different parts of his dress and household furniture the coarse linen shirt which he wears next his skin the shoes which cover his feet the bed which he lies on all of the different parts which compose it 
the kitchen grate at which he prepares his victuals, the coals which he makes use of for that purpose, dug from the bowels of the earth and brought to him, perhaps by a long sea and long land carriage, all the other utensils in his kitchen, all the furniture of his table, the knives, the forks, the earthen or pewter plates upon which he serves up and divides his victuals, the different hands employed in preparing his bread and his beer, the glass window which lets in the heat and the light and keeps out the wind and the rain with all the knowledge and art requisite for preparing that beautiful and happy invention without which these northern parts of the world could scarce have afforded a very comfortable habitation together with the tools of all the different workmen employed in producing those different conveniences if we examine i say all of these things and consider what a variety of labor is employed about each of them we shall be sensitive that are sensible that without the assistance and cooperation of many thousands the very meanest person in a civilized country could not be provided even according to what we very falsely imagine the easy and simple manner in which he is commonly accommodated i think the reason that Smith goes into such a lengthy description of the market interconnectivity, aside from him just being naturally long-winded, was to highlight just how much each product, trade, and worker is not just connected, but reliant on each other. The market, and, and I mean market with a capital M, the overall market, isn't a casino. It isn't a zero-sum game where we're all just trying to amass as much as we can and leave. It's a vast web of, of interdependence across all people involved, and, and even people who think they're not involved. You doing your job, truly, regardless of what that job is, is facilitated by tens, hundreds, thousands of other people who you've never met. Or, or had any direct interaction with, but their labor allows you to do yours, and your labor facilitates the labor of thousands of other people, including the people who facilitate your labor, and on and on, like we're all cells in some greater organism, all pushing towards a single goal. Sorry to get a little metaphysical on you there, but... If you start to think about that concept of, of interreliance in, in, in the market and, and continue pushing it to its natural conclusions, things do start to butt up against the psychedelic. I will save communing with the great beyond for a separate episode. One last takeaway that I think is worth noting. I don't know about you, but, but when I read this chapter, I, I sometimes bump on the way Smith describes the new working dynamic under the division of labor. It's sounding a bit like the description of some kind of dystopian steampunk sweatshop where we're all made to sit and perform our menial task in the great assembly line to a point of maddening repetition over and over forever until we die at our station. Uh, kind of like that Charlie Chaplin movie, uh, Modern Times. It's, it's helpful to remember that, that I don't think that Smith is reveling in the idea of all work becoming menial and mind-numbing. 
what I think he's impressed by, and, and this gets a reference later in the book, is that with the increased productivity and, and relative ease of labor, because the new task may be menial and repetitive, but it sure beats the back-breaking way you used to have to do it, what we should be seeing is a decrease in the need for work hours being spent in these jobs, thus freeing up people to do other things. We'll see that Smith refers to this not as unemployment, but as leisure, in the way that only a fairly well-off academic can. But even with his somewhat aristocratic bubble, Smith's point is still sound. Being freed up from more laborious labor out there frees, uh, frees us up for, to pursue other things. And that's not necessarily sitting around watching TV. It frees up our workforce to invent new things. It, it gives us time for cultural pursuits, academic pursuits. It allows us to do more with our day than just pound out a few dozen nails. And there's nothing dystopian about that. Now, if you're looking around saying, hey, we've had the uh, this division of labor thing for over 200 years. Where's all my free time? Well, that's because we seem to keep increasing demand to meet our productivity. As you become more productive at your job, we, as a society, seem to keep moving the goalpost and demanding more out of you. That's an odd sort of problem. One, one we'll probably explore in a later episode, but for now, I thought I'd just kind of leave that out there for you to think about. So, that was chapter one of book one of The Wealth of Nations. Not too grueling, I hope. Next week, we'll be back with another topic episode, and in two weeks, we'll tackle Chapter 2 of Book 1. If you're reading along and want me to answer a question or cover a certain part of the next chapter, feel free to post a message on the Facebook group, or you can shoot me an email directly at the show's new email address, okay, let me tell you why you're wrong, at gmail.com. That's all one word with no punctuation, no comma after okay, no apostrophe in your. As always, special thanks to George Sacco, who composed the unlicensed music that I'm now using in the intro and outro. If you like his stuff, check out his uh, channel on YouTube. That's George with a J and S-A-C-C-O. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you're liking the new release schedule and episode format, be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Uh, we're still sitting pretty at uh, 5.0 average, but the more ratings and uh, reviews there are, the higher up the charts we move. And with that, I've been Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs>